and welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Is democracy threatened in America? Because we never thought in our lifetimes we would be asking that question. Yet, here we are, seemingly more polarized than any other time in our history. So our goal in this podcast isn't to tell you the news, but to help us understand how the stories we hear and believe are crafted for other reasons and how that impacts our belief in a democratic form of governance. We're gonna slow down and take a deep look at motivations, interpretations, and yes, the facts themselves. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum. I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, which is a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us. And I'm David Reardon, Director of Vital Signs of Democracy. Every two weeks, we publish a rating of the threat level to democracy in this country based on our unique narrative analysis of the news. And we pay particular attention to how both Make America Great narratives from the Biden Democrats and the MAGA Republicans are garnering support from their voters or not. You can find our latest rating at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. Well, Debbie Lynn, there was no shortage of news over these past three weeks, to be sure. So much so that we delayed this podcast until we understood more of the details of Trump's newest indictment. So we're going to get into that. Plus, I want to highlight a potential hidden threat to our democracy that emerged out of the debt ceiling agreement. But let's start with Trump's indictment. What's your take from what we know so far? Well, first of all, it's really good to be back here uh, doing our podcast, David, and I'm, I'm glad that we waited a little bit to, to get some distance, if you will, from both the uh, indictment and the debt ceiling. And I have to say, reading through the indictment and then watching you know, coverage across the three cable news networks has been really interesting because in reading the indictment, there's a, a story of like, it's all over, but the crying just in reading through the indictment itself. Unless, of course, you're listening to Fox, and in which case they're they're telling a different narrative of that everybody's picking on Trump. But reading through it myself, it sounds really cut and dry, as if, like, he took the documents, he knew he was taking the documents, the government said, give them back, he said no. The government said, you have to give them back, he said no, and then worked and conspired with some people to try and to hide them from his own attorneys. And then when the government came and took them, he cried foul. I don't even really know what to say anymore because I'm so like, just really, really wanting, despite reality, us to move on past this era where we don't have a shared reality with our fellow Americans. And that part causes me great distress and makes me want to like take a media break and not watch anything. You know, it's almost like we're living on the merry-go-round, you know, we're, and and as we go around in circles, it's like one person says, oh, look, there's an oak tree. Another person says, no, that's not an oak tree. It's a fence post. And then the third person goes, what do you mean? All I see is a goat. And it's like, we're closing our eyes until we get around to that right part of the Ferris wheel again, where we can see what we want, what we think should be there. And I don't know about you, David, but I want off the damn ride. So say some more about that. I'm assuming that you're not stepping back from the work you do. So when you say you want to get off the wild ride, what does that mean? A couple of things. One, first and foremost, I need to be aware of of my own sense of overwhelm because as an eternal optimist, 
and a, and a silver lining seeker, when I'm feeling discouraged because of the news and ingesting too much news, I know I need to step back a little bit and practice some self-care. So it's just like a really practical down to earth in order for me to maintain optimism and, and be a, a force for good in the world. I have to actually take care of myself. But the other thing it tells me is that we are lacking of a healthy, helpful narrative that the American majority can get behind. I, I'm not seeing it out there anywhere, that there's a story out there that we actually want to work towards. Instead, we're, we're practicing either aversion or conflict in dealing with the overwhelm that a lot of Americans are feeling with. And I think that's part of what the reaction is to the call or the call to violence that a lot of, of folks are saying right now, because we don't have a better story. And we're just going to like try and hold on to the oak tree or the fence post or the goat instead of stopping the ride and, and taking stock of where we are and then going off on an adventure. I'm really glad that you got into a bit of what you're feeling, because what you're describing is what many of us are going through, particularly those of us whose work it is to analyze and report on these events. Because when we talk about threats to democracy in America, one of those threats that is high on our list at Vital Signs is Americans feeling paralyzed by the current culture war. We sometimes describe a state of paralysis as a deer in the headlights, right? But what happens to the deer that freezes in the headlights and doesn't get out of the way? It gets hit by the truck. In this case, I'm worried that if a majority of Americans remain paralyzed for whatever reason, about whether Trump should be prosecuted or not, our democracy could suffer. I mean, we're already seeing MAGA Republican leaders suggest that Trump's indictment on the Mar-a-Lago case is politically motivated, even though they have read the indictment that spells out Trump's criminal national security violations. So much so that if you and I had committed those acts, we'd probably already be convicted and in prison. But before we go on, I want to make one other point about the pundits that are claiming that this federal indictment of Trump proves that no one is above the law. Based on our narrative analysis, we believe that's true as far as it goes. But in this case, there's another factor that is yet to be known. Because it's not just that Trump has been indicted, but whether or not his trial will take place before the 2024 election. So here's the question. Will our system of justice be able to ensure voters that they'll know the outcome of this case before they vote? I mean, one of the things we've been reminded of, given the prosecutions of Trump's staff during his presidency, is that people of privilege with the necessary resource can drag cases out for a long time with legal maneuvering, technicalities, and endless appeals. In this case, we don't have that kind of time to determine whether our justice system is going to hold Trump accountable. I mean, in our minds, that'll be the true test of our justice system as we see it. And I guess the other part that coming back up for me as you're talking about this is it is also an opportunity for us as everyday Americans to affirm the rule of law. You know, this is what you're talking about through the judicial system checking out or being cynical about rulings, et cetera, but by following the evidence as the court does and believing it. I mean, really just like believing in our court of law, in our justice system helps strengthen democracy. 
And I think the other thing that needs to happen too is for those of us who are standing for the rule of law, we need to figure out how to how to argue or disagree better with our friends and family members who want to highlight Jim Jordan's rants on whatever committee he's in charge of right now. Or, you know, I had my my friend who who pulled out the Durham report and said, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the Durham report. And and my response to her, and I I really you know, and this is all through Facebook exchange. It's actually um, out there that uh, I'm not sure the public can see it, but what she was asking me for was for me to be open to changing my mind that maybe I'm wrong. And my response to her was really (laughs) to say, like, given the ability of anyone in our country to lie with impunity, I really do wait for the evidence to speak. And when I say evidence, I do mean things that are witnesses who testify under oath and evidence that is presented and and received before the court, because those are the the two ways that we have to get around the performative aspect of the political campaigning and legislate, you know, performative legislation, if you will, that's happening in uh, much of our country right now. And the reason that I wait for the evidence to speak is because we are a country with laws that afford many protections for the accused, and especially the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And when my friend asked me about the Durham report, I just reminded her that that the courts have not found that Durham report evidence, and I use evidence in air quotes, to meet the standard beyond a reasonable doubt. The charges haven't been brought against Hunter Biden or his father, the president, and because they have also been re- routinely dismissed for lack of evidence. And Trump has been accused and charged. There's an indictment that has incredible amount of detailed allegations. And I'm going to wait for the process to play out. And I hope it's fast. That's a really important story that you're bringing up about the Durham report. And for those in the audience that don't know how the Durham report you referenced came about, it was written by a special prosecutor appointed by Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr. And he was going to look into Trump's claim that the FBI under Obama had unfairly investigated Trump's campaign connections to the Russian interference in the 2016 election. The findings of that FBI probe formed the basis of the Mueller investigation. And after all it talked about in its many pages of narrative and relevant facts, the Mueller probe yielded indictments of 34 individuals, two companies, and convictions of top Trump campaign officials. By comparison, Durham's investigation spent four years and six and a half million dollars and sent no one to jail and lost the two jury trials that he brought. Trump's narrative about the FBI acting inappropriately towards him was not proven in a court of law to just underline the point that you were making. This case, even if you disagree with the Justice Department decision not to charge Clinton, it doesn't mean that Trump should not be charged for this mishandling of national security documents. One of two things is going to happen. Either the Justice Department is going to prove to a jury that he broke the law concerning his illegal possession and handling of the national security documents, or they won't. Either way, it's not the claims of anybody's investigation that matter, but whether the claims that are being promoted in that narrative can be proved beyond a doubt to a jury. Right. Well, and I think the one thing that I I just want to like 
close out this part of our conversation with is that our choice to believe in the rule of law or not, I think is really critical for the survival of the American Democratic Republic. Because if we don't believe in the rule of law, if we don't agree to abide by the findings of the court, we descend into chaos. Right. And, and that is just open ground for a tyrant to come in and shape America to be in whatever image they want it to be in. So you you had mentioned uh, that you actually had some things prepared uh, for the debt around the debt ceiling talk before uh, the indictments <laughs> came down. And I just wondered, like, you know, do you have some thoughts about the the debt ceiling negotiations and what happened? Well, now that Trump has been indicted in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, you know, news cycles are going to be filled 24-7 with all the latest ins and outs of those investigations, to say nothing of additional indictments against Trump that appear to be coming. But behind Trump's legal troubles, however, is an issue that we are seeing that may decide the 2024 election that has nothing to do whether Trump goes to jail or not. And that issue is, as always, the state of the economy. Voters can have whatever opinion they want on whether Trump should be held accountable. But when they actually vote, what we see in the patterns is they usually vote with their pocketbooks. I mean, how they're feeling about the state of their finances. Now, President Biden intends to run on the strong economy he claims has emerged because of his efforts. And of course, MAGA Republicans will counter with their usual story about Democrats runaway spending, wasting taxpayer dollars. These are the traditional arguments that both parties have made for years. Now, our big concern, however, is if Democrats don't strongly challenge this traditional narrative that somehow Republicans cut federal spending and Democrats increase it, they could unwittingly contribute to another big lie being promoted by the media that could lose them the 2024 election, no matter what happens to Trump in court. But before I explain what I mean by that, what's your current view of the current economy and how both parties are talking about it? And you can include what we just heard from both of them during the debt ceiling dust-up. I think you're onto something here. And I, if I were advising the Biden administration right now, not only would I find some like personal examples and people examples, I would also figure out how to reach the people who have checked out. You know, so last month I was in Denver and my Lyft driver, you know, asked me what I did. And I, you know, said I was, you know, attending a meeting for political reformers. And he's like, oh, politics. And he's an immigrant. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've been a citizen for 20 years. I gave up voting. So that led to this, you know, new conversation and it talked to him a little bit about why he'd given up and he felt like it didn't make a difference. And, you know, he lives in Denver. He's right, right near you. And basically, you know, and I said, and he said Biden wasn't doing anything for him. And I was like, well, in the next year, you should start to see, you know, the job market pick up here because of the Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act. And there's going to, there, there should be more jobs. That's what the Biden administration has done for you. But because he doesn't listen, he's not a news follower. I don't know if he's on social media or not, because we didn't get that far into it. It wasn't that long of a ride. But he's not, he's not your typical 
per, or maybe he is the typical person to reach that needs to be reached. And, you know, I just happen to be a passenger sharing that information with him that may or may not have some impact on him returning to voting, regardless of who he votes for. But reaching people where they are is, is critical. So thanks for that. Let me comment first on your thoughts about President Biden's attempts to convince voters that his administration has been good for them financially. And I think they've even gone as far as to give it a name, right? Bidenomics? Yeah. I mean, we're seeing what the Democrats are rolling out in terms of their reminders of how much they've gotten done in the past two years. That includes more jobs created, more infrastructure funded, etc. But Biden's numbers, particularly on the economy, continue to be on the negative side. So there is something about the way he's promoting his accomplishments that is not landing with voters, even the independents that tend to lean more progressive. Well, I just want to note that I think I think Biden is actually trying to reach and his messaging to reach working class voters and to reach the middle class. You know, being here in D.C., I see a lot of um, PAC ads, both for and against, you know, whatever's up in front of Congress at the moment. Been quite interesting, actually, to watch, to just see those ads and read the fine print to see who's paying for them. There is a move right now, just uh, today, actually, I saw an ad saying, hey, you know, we have all these new jobs coming to your town soon, uh, brought to you by the Infrastructure Act. Exactly. Let me see if I can illuminate some of what you said with what we're seeing. In the recent debt ceiling dust-up, McCarthy said his reason for holding the American economy hostage was the old Republican tome that they wanted to reduce federal spending and the size of the national government. That has been the traditional Republican Party battle cry for years. And the news media, even the progressive news media, still repeats that story over and over and over again. And so Democrats are stuck with the indictment that they are big spenders and even worse, waste taxpayers' money. This is the big lie that both parties and the media continue to promote. If you look at the last 40 plus years of economic data when each party was in charge of the government, nothing could be further from the truth. Since Ronald Reagan in the 80s, Republicans, when they have been in charge of the federal government, raised federal spending and did not reduce the size of federal government. What they did do was eliminate federal agency regulations that were designed to keep corporate greed in check so that it would benefit the rest of us. Just an interesting little aside. I had a friend who was ranting on Facebook the other day. She's having trouble getting her refund from the IRS. And she has actually made contact with the IRS a couple of times and had to resubmit paperwork to get her tax refund. And so she was raving about the IRS and how awful they are. I said, I just want you to know that for at least a decade, probably closer to two, the IRS has been intentionally underfunded in the U.S. budget, intentionally underfunded, so that when they have staffing shortages and customer service failures, the candidates can have a campaign point that says, look at how broken the IRS is. We just need to abolish it. And the inspector generals have been have been uh, defunded and, and all of the mechanisms that actually ensure government works have been underfunded. Right. So just know, and I was like, so I don't like paying taxes any more than anyone else is what I told her. 
But just remember that the IRS is also a pawn in the politics of power right now. And I think what you're pointing to with this, this second big lie narrative is that we use our belief systems to assess the government to confirm those stories, regardless of the facts, and that most government agencies are pawns in the game of political power. Right. And in this latest debt ceiling debate, what was one of the things that MAGA Republicans wanted to eliminate or reduce the funding for? The IRS. Why? Because they believed the additional agents that that funding would pay for would go after rich people and corporations who are not paying their fair share of taxes. Here's a little more information about this pattern that we see that is exactly the opposite of what the common wisdom suggests about what Republicans do about the economy and the Democrats do. In 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected, promising to cut the size of the federal government and give tax breaks to, as it turned out, big corporations and the rich. And the theory of the case that he was pitching was that this extra money corporations would save on taxes would trickle down to benefit the rest of us. In 1988, the G.W. Bush administration continued Reagan's economic policies, even though there was no proof that the extra money corporations were saving on taxes was trickling down to anyone. He famously said, read my lips, no new taxes. Of course, when the federal deficit skyrocketed as he increased federal spending, he reversed himself. Breaking his word about raising taxes was one of the reasons he lost the next election to Bill Clinton. So in 1992, after Clinton is elected, a group of conservatives in Congress led by Newt Gingrich, the co-author and architect of Contract with America, forced Clinton to cut federal spending. I mean, Time magazine named Gingrich the man of the year for his role in ending the four decades long Democratic majority in the House. And as a result, many of the reforms Clinton wanted to make were stillborn. The only positive thing that came out of this belt tightening was for the first time since 1970, the U.S. had budget surpluses for fiscal years 1998 to 2001. However, it came at a cost to safety net programs for less affluent populations and funding for education and health care. So in 2000, G.W. Bush inherits a healthy economy from Clinton, but two things happen. First, he authorizes two significant tax cuts in 2001 and 2003 in the name of this failed trickle-down theory. And the other thing, obviously, is America was attacked on 9-11. Suddenly, military and homeland security spending went off the charts. And this Bush administration also loosened regulations on banks that allowed them to lower the amount of money they needed to keep in reserve. This fueled cheap credit and lax lending standards that created the 2008 housing bubble. And when that bubble burst, if you remember, the banks were left holding trillions of dollars of worthless investments in subprime mortgages. And this resulted in the 2008 financial crisis that almost crashed our economy. So in 2008, Obama inherits this financial crisis caused by the Republicans and authorizes a massive bailout of banks and Wall Street firms. But when Republicans took control of Congress in 2010, they forced Obama to cut the spending authorized for the recovery by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. 
Sound familiar? This cutting of the recovery funding substantially slowed the middle class being made whole again after the 2008 crisis, even though banks and Wall Street were doing great again. So that's the pattern. Now, you might ask why in the world would Republicans raise federal spending when that seems directly in conflict with their stated narrative that they are the party that wants to cut federal spending? And the simple answer is, wait for it, is politics. Voters love more federal spending if they can see it benefits them. And Republicans did not want Democrats, when they were in charge, to benefit with voters from such funding increases. The perfect example of this is that in the uh, the Trump tax cuts that got enacted in late 2017, taking effect almost two weeks later for 2018, like they were effective, like boom, immediately. They cut tax rates for the wealthy and inserted into that bill some special exemptions for real estate developers. And then they were temporary tax cuts that were set to expire uh, in the next couple of years. So it was during late in the next administration. And what that does is that provides this really neat trick for campaign fodder, because if the Democrats let the tax cuts expire, and the Republicans are going to be out there saying, see, tax and spend Democrats, they just, yep. you know, whatever, blah, yep. blah, blah. And it happens over and over and over again. I feel like it's Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football pulling it away. Yeah. Same thing happens time after time. So before we make this too big a case against just the MAGA Republicans for lying to voters about their economic intentions, the real danger to democracy that we see is that Democrats and the media continue to play their part in supporting this false narrative. And as we said earlier, President Biden is attempting to reverse his negative numbers on economic issues by highlighting the bills his administration has passed to increase jobs and infrastructure. The media, in turn, is reporting on how those efforts so far have not proved fruitful for Biden's numbers. And the big lie continues. That is the threat that we see to our democracy. If both parties and the media, and that includes both the conservative and liberal media, are not telling voters the truth about something as important as our economy, we run the danger that our economic health is going to be impacted. And that would lead voters to pick somebody more autocratic in nature like Trump to fix it. I just want to finish up by saying, you know, so when you you couple that with the hobbling of the federal agencies and taking away their power, it's up to us, the American people, to kind of like see through all of these uh, preferred beliefs, if you will, for the stories that they are and use, just like with the rule of law, let's use the evidence uh, and figure out what we want so we we can actually get there. So we started with your feeling overwhelmed by the current political circus surrounding Trump's latest indictment. Any closing thoughts on how you would like to turn that in a more positive direction? Well, number one, I want to get Trump evicted from my brain and from American consciousness. Number two, I would look like all of us, homework assignment for anybody who wishes to accept it. I would like people to think about what do they want for their own future and share that with us. And until next time, uh, David, it's been a pleasure spending some time with you here today. Amen to that. And if 
All of you out there are still curious about what we've shared in this podcast about the actual economic history of both parties when they're in power. We will put the YouTube link to MSNBC's Chris Hayes' excellent summary of that data so you can see it for yourselves. And we look forward to the next time we all meet on Vital Signs of Democracy. Thank you.